Tabletop Unknown. Hello and welcome to Tabletop Unknown, the show where we playtest lesser-known RPGs. I am your host, Jesse, and with me, as always, is my illustrious co-host, Will. Hello, Ooh, Will. Well- illustrious hello jesse that's a that's a word i don't hear a lot of these days but i love it when it comes up um yeah so i'm will and and on this show we choose a gaming system we test it with players and then we talk about it and this season we will be exploring avatar legends published by magpie games through the kickstarter which has just finished and everyone's getting all their digital content right now which is very exciting so yeah physical content not yet coming no not yet come but uh, a bit the of digital delays. stuff's all been delivered yeah well i mean that's kind of the the nature of kickstarters isn't it like um you know, you, you don't hear often of a Kickstarter that runs smoothly and according to the timeline. No. Um, I and, am uh, currently heartbroken because I'm waiting on a Monster Hunter Kickstarter, which is like a massive oh, really? board game. And I got an email today and they're like, yep, delayed until November, December, because we only just got the final printing items to the to the to the three D printers and I was like no <laughs> yeah that's that's extremely rough I feel you I had yeah. a I have a, a set of uh, measuring spoons that are the <laughs> they're the one sort of uh, Kickstarter where the the, the creators just disappeared and ghosted everyone oh, no. and it's sitting there from like 2014 and every time I log in I go oh. That's right. There's that one stain on my Kickstarter history. (laughs) You fucking got me with your folding measuring spoons and now you've taken my money and you've gone. I yeah. But that seems to be the way that a lot of game designers are going these days. Not not just like RPGs, but board games, as you said. Um, you know, they, they seem to be fundraising through Kickstarter these days as opposed to, you know, the traditional way of um, developing and and selling and and yeah, doing well, that I sort guess of I guess there's less risk, right? Because then you can prove you're you're essentially proving to your publisher it's like yes, we can that like the desire is there. This will sell because it's already sold, and in fact, we've already financed the game. So yeah, it 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 does sort of make sense, I guess. And there, there's actually um there's been a like Kickstarter like platform developed specifically for gaming which I think has just launched or it's just in its early days or something like that. Um, so hopefully we'll see, uh, yeah, a bit more accurate timelines and stuff. It seems weird that they would have to prove Avatar Legends as a success, though, because, I mean, it's yeah, probably very one weird. of the biggest franchises of the last 20 years, would you say? Yeah, and one of the most critically acclaimed franchises yeah. of the last 20 years. I mean, I know Korra had some issues because um, Korra was being made like halfway through that writer's strike. Years ago, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so that caused a lot of issues in their later seasons. But like, it's it is widely loved. I I don't think I've met a person who hasn't at least heard of Avatar. The last yeah, Airbender. it's a juggernaut. It is a, a an absolute phenomenon. And um, the, the exciting thing is, is now they've got their own studio. You know, the live action Netflix one is coming. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I believe they're doing more animated stuff as well, which is very exciting. I cannot yeah. wait to see that. No, I'm um, very keen. Very keen. So yeah, um, if you're not familiar with this podcast, the structure of our seasons works uh, thusly. We Episode 1, we do an intro into the system and world and we talk about the actual game itself, the actual mechanics. We get down into the nitty gritty of how the game works. 
um, and how to run it. Then episodes two to five, that sometimes changes, it can be two to four. That is our real play story arc, where we get in a bunch of our actor friends to play the game themselves. And we have a bit of fun, a bit of chaotic one-shot <laughs> action fun across that. Someone ends up with their head their head in their hands, usually. It's usually me. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's usually. a general rule. <laughs> and then our very last episode, usually episode six or five, we have a debrief with the cast and the game master and we talk about the system, what we liked, what we didn't like, and we also rate and it we out of pizza. five. And we eat pizza. Yeah, we call it pizza talk because yeah. we're eating pizza it's- while we do it. I think it's the most important part, actually. Like, you've got to mention the pizza, right? Yeah, almost. It, it, like, it is the most important <laughs> part. I still think about the burger pizza that I had. Mate, mate, we, can, we need to keep recording there just because it's near that pizza yes, shop exactly. and I want that burger pizza. The, the saddest <laughs> part is, is like, I, just, I, I guess we can just segue into our sort of ca- quick catch-up, Will, because I'm in a musical. Yeah. You're currently performing in a musical. I've just managed Absolutely. to catch you on one of your non-performing days. And I've just started like light and easy and <laughs> i i am like literally today like i got all the food today so like yeah, yeah. i am already like desperately thinking about the things i won't be able to eat <laughs> it's, it's, so the, the sadness hasn't quite set in but there's like a preemptive sadness almost. it's the sadness for the impending sadness is what yes. currently what i'm feeling <laughs> Well, no, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm, I, I, I wish you well. You. I wish you luck. It is for my musicals, will... so I'm not yeah. planning to be on it forever. Just, uh, no, the things we do. The things, hey, we, the do things we do for, for art. our art. Yep. Um, but look, let's sort of uh, jump into a little bit of an intro into this game. Now, as, you, as, as we've sort of already said, Avatar is a pretty big franchise. You've sort of got... Um, Two people, two kinds of people. When you mention Avatar to them, uh, one of them's like, "Oh yeah, I, I've heard of that. That sounds, yeah, that sounds pretty cool." And the other's like, "What do you mean, the blue people or the other one?" So <laughs> that's sort of the two attitudes most people who haven't uh, seen it go into it with. Um, but Avatar: The Last Airbender and Avatar: The Legend of Korra take place in this world where um, people are able to harness power of the four classic elements so earth fire wind and water um and they are able to sort of harness those powers and use them in in various forms of fighting and things like that uh there is a prophesized being called the avatar who can harness all four of them and through that power uh he or she or they are said to be able to um bring peace and balance to the world now uh avatar the last airbender takes place in um a time period where the world has just gone through this massively devastating war. So it's been, it's the hundred years war. It went for a hundred years and basically the fire nation invaded the, essentially the entire world and destroyed the air nation. So those people who can bend those elements make up um, one of four nations, the earth kingdom, the water tribe, tribes, tribes, the, uh, air, tribes air nomads and the fire nation and so the uh the fire nation invaded destroyed the air nomads uh basically enslaved the water tribes and um continue to try and overtake the earth kingdom that's where the last airbender takes place and so we follow the the avatar uh a child named ang as he um reemerges from uh from you know having been gone for a hundred years and tries to master all the elements to to stop this this sort of terrible invasion. Um and it's really it's a it's a show that as we've already said has been really critically acclaimed for a lot of reasons. But first like the thing that comes to my mind foremost is that it, it deals with some pretty heavy topics, but in a way that younger people 
can understand and um yeah, that in a way that younger people can really understand. Yeah, it's really it. so- palatable. It doesn't shy away from any of the horrible things that happen during a war, but it presents them in such a way that's understandable and it's not just like, hey, we're going to watch like 400 people over here kill 400 people over there. No, it's like, no, is absolutely. murder right? Is murder wrong? Even if people are telling me to do it, should I do it? You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, which is quite like quite heavy for a lot of um, a lot of young people. So. It sort of, and it introduces them to the concept of, of um, you know, co- uh, not colonization. Um, what am I trying to say? Like fascism. Um, yeah, fascism. Things like that. It's pretty, pretty good analog in there. I think you, like the Fire Nation is used to represent that, which is really cool. But also like propaganda and how even on both sides, like there is, you know, terrible things being done in a war and, and people yeah, don't want absolutely. certain things coming out. So the game, the, 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 the world really leans hard into all of those things and it's shot through the lens of a group of children, like or yeah. teenagers, I should say, um, which again makes it relatable to kids. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful parts of the show um, and I think why people became so obsessed with it because people re-watch it now or, or watch it for the first time and are blown away by it, even though it's, you know, it's close to 20 years old now, I'd say. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think early, early to mid-2000s. Yeah. So... Because we, uh, we got that wonderful uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie in 2009, no, we, I think. I, no, so. we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> what, are we ta- what am I talking about? I don't know what Shut I'm up. talking about. You're wrong. <laughs> so that's the world, and it's pretty, it's pretty well fleshed out. There's a lot... There's a, there's a constant status quo um, of the Fire Nation attacking, and that's sort of the world that we're presented with through the TV show, but the game gives us a broad scope of errors to play through, and we'll get to that when we talk, when we talk closer about the system. Um, yeah, so absolutely. you're not just limited to this one sort of section that Will's explaining, but that section's important because it's sort of set up the entire Avatar universe um, yeah. and why we're here today. Absolutely. So this game was uh, published by Magpie Games, and as we've already said, it was um, funded through Kickstarter. The project manager is Elizabeth Chypredickel, and uh, the lead designer is Brendan Conway. Core designers are Brendan Conway, James Mendez Hodes, Marissa Kelly, and Mark Diaz Truman. Um, so a big team there over at Magpie Games. Um, and it's it's utilizing a system, which I'm sure you'll get into in a few minutes. It's utilizing a system called Powered by the Apocalypse. Is that correct? That's correct. Also yeah. uh, created by um, Magpie Games. It's funny. If you ever think about, like, what do you mean? It's like when we say system or mechanics. But um, it's very similar to how, like, a video game is built on a certain engine. It's like... Yeah. And you can, like, play a video game and... You can't put your finger on what it is about the game, but you can play a game and you can play a different game. You go, why do these feel the same? And it's because they're using the same engine. You know, the way you interact with the world is all built on the same sort of rules or physics or whatever that the system uses. And it's similar. So Powered by the Apocalypse, um, we bring up a few times, um, even in our play section, because um, one of our cast members is really familiar with that specific system, um, and we talk about it a bit. That's what we're talking about, and I'll get into that in just a moment. But yeah, look, I mean, I guess that's as good a launching place as any to jump into the sure. gameplay. Um, so, do you want to talk us through um, what some of the sort of unique 
aspects of this particular system are, not necessarily just in relation to Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, but also um, powered by the apocalypse, like what that sort of. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking into our gameplay straight away. Usually we do character creation first, but I just wanted to touch on the gameplay because it is so unique, especially if you're used to games like D and D or Pathfinder. It is a very different system. So the first thing we want to talk about is this game is a bit unique in that your session zero. A lot of games, like for example with D and D, you don't necessarily need to do a session zero. A lot of players will like they'll build their characters outside of group and then come together uh, to like once they've created their characters and then the DM will just like start the game. Um, yeah. A lot of people do do session zeros, which I think are great, where you create all your you all create your characters together. You sort of figure out what you want to do, and the DM might play a little bit, but the more it's more about explaining the game and how it works. But with um, this game and pretty much any Powered by the Apocalypse game, you actually, Session Zero is pretty much always you do this with your players before you even start, which is really cool because it fundamentally asks you to do a lot of the creation and backstory figuring out in the room um, Mm. and in the moments that they become relevant, not necessarily before you build your character or before you start playing. Which is um, something that I guess, you know, full disclosure, we've already actually played this game. We're recording this post-gameplay, but something that this game really, really amps up even just in terms of, you know, um, any other sort of role-playing game that we've that we've spoken about is that idea of collaborative storytelling. It's very much player and DM driven. Yeah. Um, and that, that session zero really... Uh, helps with that process as well absolutely now when you start there's actually um a section in the in the book in the core rule book called the campaign creation worksheet and it actually is just a handy little guide that you can print off um to go through and do this together as a group so first of all it asks you to choose your error which is a section of the game that you wish to be playing in in the history it starts off in the kyoshi era goes through to the roku era goes through the hundred year war era the Ang era, which is set in the first TV show, and then the Korra era, which is the second series as well. So that's the first thing you need to choose. That's obviously going to set um, the tone because within that era, there's actually a lot of different things that the kind of flavor of game is influenced by the era itself. So, um, for example, the Kyoshi era is if you want to fight in battles against rogues and bandits and deal with government corruption... Um, as the nations start to establish their borders, that's the era to play in. But if you want to focus on, say, re- rebelling against unjust rule, uh, protecting the weak and standing up to tyranny, you want to play in the Hundred Year War. So mm. already you've already got a bunch of flavors that you get to play with and figure out what exactly is going on and, and sort of the tone you want to take your game in. So once you've chosen your arrow, you then need to choose your scope. And you do this as a group. You go, okay, how big do we want this game that we're about to embark on to be? Um, And you can choose like a narrow scope, which is what we did for when we played. You can choose like a a broad scope, which means you can open up the world. You can just go anywhere. So once you've chosen your scope, you need to then choose your group focus, which is what you do. You do together as a group. Um, And again, this is more details about what you're actually going to be doing. So first of all, um, 
Your group focus is, it's the purpose which first united your companions to achieve a common goal. So your characters might disagree on how to achieve it, but they all believe the goal is so important that it's worth risking danger and changing their futures. So automatically the game is already asking you to work together and to be a focused group. Which is good, because then you you avoid a lot of like the D&D stuff of like one character going and doing something ridiculous or people stealing from each other and that sort of thing. You can avoid yeah. that. The game's very much like, no, you are together in whatever it is you choose. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially in that session zero, you're deciding when you want to play, be playing, how long you want to be playing for, and what you want to be doing while you're playing. Is Correct. that about right? Yeah, yeah pretty yeah, much. okay. So your options... That, um, Sorry, you go. Apologies. I find that really uh, quite stressful, actually, as a player. Like, coming up with a scope, decide, like, I, I like when I come to D&D and I know that this is, you know, part of the overarching story and Jesse's got it all under control and all that sort of thing. I think coming up with a scope as a group would be really stressful because, yeah, like, are we, are we just doing, a, like, a one, one-off type thing? Are we doing a whole campaign? It's, it, could, it could be stressful. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's very different as well. Um, part of the group focus, you need to choose um, a verb, essentially, and the game gives you a list. So I'm just going to read them all out for you. To defeat blank, uh, to protect blank, to change blank, to deliver blank, to blank, to rescue blank, or to learn blank. So you have to choose one of these group focuses and then fill in that blank and go, okay, I, we want to defeat a powerful foe or a dangerous foe, or we want to protect a place, an idea, a culture, a person, or a thing, or we want to rescue this person or this thing. Um, so, yeah, that sort of really sets it up. And once you decide on that, I think it's really good because then all your players are on the same page about what your characters want to achieve, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, it does sort of eliminate that whole... I'm going to sneak around and take all their gold type thing. Yeah. So in order to flesh out your group focus, you need to create, and this is the last section of the campaign creation worksheet, uh, you need to just flesh out your inciting incident to start off your game. So you start by picking a place within your scope, like where this incident happened, and then as a group, you choose three of the following, or one for each act of your opening story. Um, and it breaks it down into three acts, and then there's a bunch of options that you can choose. So I'm just going to go through Act 1. I'm not going to go through it all. But yep. um, Act 1 is you get you befriended an ally who gave you access to a valuable item. Uh, you discovered a secret hidden by a powerful figure. We did something fun, but drew the ire of a powerful figure in the process. Or we learned the frightening plans of a powerful foe. So you have to choose one of those, and then you can fill in who the ally is, or, or what the valuable item is, or whatever. To then really make it more focused and um, be really specific with what you want to achieve. So, for example, if you wanted to be... Um, we learned the frightening plans of the Avatar for some reason. You know, that could really yeah. put a solid twist. And then, obviously, Act 2 is going to involve those frightening plans. And then Act 3 will also involve those frightening plans. And that will also lean hard into whatever your group focus is. So, to defeat the Avatar might be what your group focus that you want to further go along the list of. Um but yeah, so that's sort of the first section of like how you start this game. The next bit is it, it wants you to uh, wants you to know that once you have your group focus 
um, and you start to sketch out your pilot episode together, it's time that is when you start meeting the characters. And they make it very clear that your characters are skilled, competent heroes. They have plenty to learn and they have a desire to change the world, but they are good at what they do. They're all good at like some sort of martial arts or something, or, or they have some great abilities or they know a lot or, or whatever it might be, but the characters are all strong. Um, and yep. that's a thing that it really wants you to know and wants you to lean into as well. So that's just the setup. Um, so now I guess we can go into the gameplay itself, like how the game actually works and runs. So yeah, because it's a, it's a, it's just it's similar to our bubble gum shoe. It's just two d sixes that it's run by, isn't Correct. it? Correct. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. gum shoe was just one d six. Was oh, actually no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one d six and then modifiers. Yeah, but already deleted you, it from my brain. You're right. Like it is, it is very close. So, um, yeah. So this is the fundamentals of play section. So I'm going to start off talking about the dice because that is the strength of the Power by the Apocalypse system. So whenever you roll anything like you do in most tabletop role-playing games, you roll a dice and then that number determines the result. It's very similar in the Power by the Apocalypse systems. You roll two six-sided dice and add that value together and then there may or may not be a modifier depending on what you're rolling. But if you roll and you get below a six or below, you're, you have failed. That straight up, yeah. you've failed. Um, you yep. do not do what you want to do. Um, however, and this is one of the more interesting parts of this, is that you can sort of... There's two ways to look at it. You can either... Every time a person fails something important, they gain experience. Or every time they fail something that has a consequence, they gain experience. So there's two ways you can do it. I like to just have it that they just get the experience. I'm pretty sure it's called... I had a character sheet here somewhere. Um, yeah, it had a particular name. It's different. Um, growth. Growth, thank you very much. Yeah, every character can mark growth when they fail something. So that's the very unique thing about Powered by the Apocalypse is failing is the only way to become better. Um, unlike, which is really interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's very natural, uh, very mm. naturalistic, because in D and D you only get experience by succeeding and achieving things, whereas yeah, you absolutely. know, um, they. It's a very good point that like you're only learning when you're failing and not succeeding. So it's it's very cool. That that's the main sort of mechanic on leveling up. Um, yeah, which so I feel like is a core a core lesson of the some of the storylines in the show as well absolutely really ties in nicely absolutely um the next thing you can roll is a mixed success which is when you roll a seven to nine basically most moves will have um and i'll get into what moves are in a second but most moves when you roll them will have a certain it's like yes you do but or you can only do it this way or there's a cost Essentially, it's a mixed success. So you do, you do do it, but there is some sort of cost involved. Um, and then lastly, a 10 plus is a full success. And essentially, the player gets to just grab the narrative for a little moment and talk about how they succeeded. Um, that's the main, that, that is the core mechanic of Powered by the Apocalypse. It's 2d6. That's it. Yeah. Very few modifiers. Um, speaking of the modifiers, we will go into that now. So there's only four modifiers for this system. Very simple. Mm. Um, Will, do you want to, do you have access to the character sheet? Do you want to 
Yeah, I do. I do. For me. So the f- the four stats or the four modifiers across all of the playbooks, which we'll get into what a playbook is soon. Creativity, focus, harmony, and passion. That's it. That's it. And depending on, and again, we'll get into what playbooks are in a second, depending on what uh, playbook you're playing as, they will have preset modifiers, which you can then add or subtract to um, as you level up. That's it for the stats. And we can't really go into more about them without actually talking about the moves. Um, The moves are how you do anything, really. Um, Moves are akin to your skills in D&D, except there's only nine of them. I'm going to go, just going to read them out quickly for you now. So these are your basic moves. You have assess the situation, plead, help, rely on your skills and training, push your luck, intimidate, guide and comfort, or trick. Sorry, that's eight, not nine. Um, All of those moves will ask for your modifier of one of those four skills. For example, um, assess the situation is creativity. So you roll 2d6 and then you add or subtract whatever your creativity score is and that's only a at most a negative two and at most a plus three yeah it's very small values we're working with in this game which is excellent i think yeah Um, yeah yeah. so simple it it takes away from the issue we had with bubblegum shoe where you could just dump all of your points into one roll essentially like do you remember that was an issue where yes like basically, you could spend your seven points on your one roll, and then it was yes, your yes, the yeah. luck roll. Yep, the the luck was yeah. it luck or your skills? Every one of your skills, you had a certain amount of points yeah, that you yeah, could yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But by limiting how much the stats can alter the roll, you are making for I think a more balanced game, which Absolutely. I think is really fun. Absolutely, and it does genuinely help. Like if you do have a plus three in something as well, that you're you're generally more likely to succeed because the values are so low most of the time, but there is always yeah. room for failure still, which is yeah, excellent. absolutely. Because if you have a plus three, you roll two ones, yep, you've still failed. Even if you roll a one and a two, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, you've, you've, you've still failed. Um, but hey, we're still learning through failure. Exactly. We're still learning in those moments. So assess the situation is, you know, your... It's essentially your perception skill. When you assess a situation, you roll with creativity. On a seven to nine, you get to ask one question. On a 10 plus, you ask two. Then you take a plus one ongoing when you act with those answers. And then it gives you a list of five questions that you can ask. Um, so very, very simple, right? Very, and, and Very um, like formulaic. Yeah, pretty much. It's which, just like- Which can be nice for people who- maybe find the idea of, you know, improv or coming up with things on the spot really stressful. Um, you know, a list of five questions that could feasibly cover anything you want to know is a really nice little, uh, like, recipe. Yeah. And even the very first question is very open-ended and you get to change what it is, but it's what here can I use to blank? So whatever you want to do, that's your question to do it if you come up with an idea. But if you want to know who or what the biggest threat is, that's a question as well. What should I be on the lookout for? What's my best way in, out, through? Or who or what is in the greatest danger? They're your five questions. That's it. You know, so simple, so easy. Whereas, you know, D&D, you're like, I roll a perception and it's this high. So the DM then has to come up with what a 
17 is worth of perception information for that character. Whereas this, it's very direct. So it makes it really easy on the DM as well. Yeah. Um, we like to not overwork our DMs. Please. Um, <laughs> when you plead with a non-player character, this is plead, sorry. When you plead with a non-player character who cares what you think for help, support, or action, you roll with harmony. On a 7 to 9, they need something more, evidence that this is the right course of action, or guidance in making the right choices, or resources to aid them do it before they act. The GM tells you what they need. On a 10+, plus, they act now and they do their best until the situation changes. So that's just to get an NPC on your side. Uh, help is for helping another player character. You mark one fatigue. That's another system which I'll get into in a little bit. You mark one yep. fatigue and you give them a plus one to their roll. Just by, and that's just how you help them out. Um, you can rely on your skills and training, which is a very big skill because it's essentially... I want to earthbend, or I want to do this with earthbending, for example, um, yeah. to resolve this thing. So it relies on your skills and training. Um, you use focus for that skill. Um, on a hit, you do it. So on a 10 plus, you just do it. Congrats, you've succeeded. 7 to 9, you do it imperfectly. The GM tells you how your approach might lead to unexpected consequences. You can either accept those consequences, or you can mark one fatigue. So again, it's like a, ooh... Am I just going to accept that I might have messed up here or am I going to like take the damage to succeed still? Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, intimidate, it's pretty obvious. You roll with passion. Um, if you succeed, you get to pick one um, from a list that the GM cannot choose for that person. So essentially when, you, when you're intimidating a non-player character, um, if you succeed, the enemy chooses one from this list. But if you get a 10 plus, first you pick one that they cannot choose. And this is a list. They run yep. to escape or get back up. They back down but keep watch. They give in with a few stipulations. They attack you but off balance, the GM marks a condition on them. So you can already say it's like, well, I don't want them to run away. So I'm going to say that they can't choose that. And then the DM has the other three options to choose from. So... Again, very interesting, very unique way of handling intimidation. Um, considering it is a big part as well, like usually intimidation isn't something that's like massive in other systems, but right here it's one of the core eight skills. So it's asking yeah. you, it's trying to get you to use words more, which is cool. Um, guide and comfort is sort of the opposite to intimidate. So when you guide and comfort another person, you roll with harmony. On a hit, they choose one of the following. They embrace your guidance and comfort. They may clear a condition or two fatigue. You may ask them one question and they must answer honestly. Or they shut you down, they inflict a condition on you and you get to shift their balance in response. Again, a balance is another thing we'll talk about in just a moment. Mm -hmm. On a 10 plus, they embrace your guidance and comfort and you may also shift their balance. So very... Very simple one there as well. Trick, again, very obvious. You're tricking someone, deception of any kind. Um, you roll with creativity. On a 7 to 9, you only pick one of the options. On a 10 plus, you pick two. They stumble. You get plus one forward to acting against them. They act foolishly. The GM tells you what additional opportunity they give you. Or they overcommit. They are deceived for some time. Um, and then finally, the last one we have is push your luck, which is a very fun one. Uh, you use push your luck whenever you're in a risky situation. Basically, just say whatever you want to do. This is like your like 
I have I have my last gambit. Like, I don't know what to do here. I'm going to do this weird thing instead. This is when you use push your luck. You roll it with passion. On a hit, you do it, but it costs you something. Um, the GM will tell you what it costs. Uh, on a 10+, plus, your boldness pays off despite the cost. The GM tells you what other lucky opportunity falls in your lap. So it's very cool yeah, in nice. that... It's very cool in that pretty much the game always considers a 7 to 9 a success. There is just an extra stipulation that you need to be worried about. So Yeah, so it's like succeeding versus your natural 20, you know? Yes, correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's all the basic moves. Next, we're going to talk about principles and balance, which we just discussed before. Um, just quickly before I do that, there is a yeah. small mechanic called fatigue. Every player character has five fatigue. Things cost fatigue or things will do fatigue to you. When you get five fatigue, you mark a condition, um, which will affect your rolls. Or it'll affect one of the four stats. It will mitigate them or it will give a negative whenever you do one of the eight basic moves. It's pretty simple. You can also clear conditions by making your characters do certain things. For example, if one of the conditions is uh, angry, you have to break something important. And once you do that, you get rid of angry. And that will, angry, I'm pretty sure, affects your guiding comfort and assess a situation. Negative. Yeah. So you get to get rid of that and you can suddenly do them properly again. Fatigue is an interesting um, little, con- uh, little mechanic because I feel like it, sort of screwed us all over at some point absolutely it did yeah yeah um the cool thing about the fatigue as well is that once you fill up on fatigue instead of taking like more like damage you just keep marking conditions if you keep getting hit once you get full conditions you're out you're done yeah You, you you're knocked out you're out of you're out of whatever thing is going on um but the only way to get rid of conditions is like very unique to each single condition. So, you know, you can bring your fatigue back down in combat, but you still have those conditions there. So it's like, oh, it's very yeah, interesting, very it. cool. Uh, anyway, balance. Balance is a thing unique to um, Avatar Legends. Uh, on your character sheet, there is this, there's these two koi fish circling around each other. Uh, what are their names? That's La and Lo or something? Or uh, La and Lo Ta? and... Uh, Lo and Ma? Lo, or Lui and, Lui and La. Or, yeah, something like that. It's a black koi fish with a white dot, white koi fish with a black dot on its head. Very yin and yang, obviously. Um, so balance, basically, every single playbook... Again, we'll get... These are all sort of inter, intertwined, so Tui. it's hard to... Tui, Tui thank you. Tui and La. Um... All these sort of things intertwine, so it's hard to sort of explain just one thing, but yeah, we'll get to it in a sec. So every playbook, which is a class essentially, has their own unique balance tree. Imagine you have two principles um, and your balance is which principle you're shifting more towards at any given point. For example, the rogue um, playbook has friendship on one side and survival on the other. So balance is represented by this constant shifting back and forth um, that the GM will do um, between those two principles. Um, so it's, it's a way of creating narrative within the character itself um, and this constant movement. The DM, uh, the GM can like enforce a, um, a balance shift 
at any point if they wish, or some things will try and shift your balance one direction or the other. You can use those principles to do things in what's called balance moves. So when you take an action in accordance to the values of a principle, whatever one that might be, you mark one fatigue and you can instead roll with that principle. So on your sheet, there's a little tape, like there's this little bar. And the more the you can either go close to one principle and have a plus three in it, but you automatically get the opposing negative in it, which will be of the same value. Yeah. Um, for example, if I have a plus three in friendship on the rogue tree, I also have a negative three to survival. So yeah. you can see how there's this constant shifting and back and forth. Um, so as a, as a rogue, if you were to, to make a move that you could roll with the friendship skill, um, you would get a plus three to that. Whereas Correct. if you're making a roll to do with the, was it, sorry, was it stealth? Survival. Survival, it would be a negative three. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah so, okay. um, you know, so if you're going to save your friends, that's obviously going to use friendship. So you get to roll with that instead of whatever other stat you might've done because that yeah. lives up to your principles. So it's a way of like making your character's desires and principles narratively matter in a mechanical way. Yeah. You know? Okay. So, yeah. So that, that that's, it's, that's the balance's main purpose, I believe. Um, there is another point. To, there's another section of balance. Basically, it's called your center. In between these two bars of your negative three to your plus three, um, there's these seven boxes or diamonds. Um, your center will shift one in whatever direction towards whatever principle once you've got to the plus three and then get another movement over to it. So, for example, if I have full friendship um, at a plus three and I do one more thing and my DM goes, yep, take a, take, uh, shift your balance towards friendship one more time. And I go, well, it's already full. They go, cool. You need to shift your center. Your center is where your balance resets to. Um, so for example, once I've done that at the start of a new session, my balance will reshift. And it will, but it will go back to my center and my center has now moved up one. So I always start with a plus one friendship and a negative one survival now. Right. Okay, so yeah, your yeah. center will move around as much uh, as well. Um, so that, that's another way of like showing character growth yeah, in a more so permanent more, way. The more you rely on something, the more it becomes a part of you almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, with balance, there are some moves that you can do. I'm not going to go through them all because we want to get through this. But there's live up to your principle, which is what I used before. So take action in accordance with the values of a principle. Um, you can call someone out. So you can say, hey, I don't think you're living up to your principle. Um, and you can shift their balance away from center, which is really yeah. cool. Um, but you can only do that if you know what their principle is, which is fun. Um, you can deny someone else calling you out which is cool. Um, you can resist anyone shifting your balance, which is great. This is a fun one because essentially um, on a, you, you roll and on a hit, you maintain your current balance in spite of their words or deeds. On a 10 plus, you get to choose two options. On a seven to nine, you get to choose one. You can clear a condition or mark growth by immediately acting to prove them wrong. You can shift your balance towards the opposite principle or you can learn what their principle is if they have one 
if you know it already, you get a plus one against them. So, like, yeah, right. there's a lot of really cool narrative stuff in the balance stuff. Then finally, there's losing your balance. So, again, this is similar to what I was just describing. If your balance shifts past the end of your track, you lose your balance. You obsess over that principle to a degree that it's not healthy. You have to choose one of the following. Give in or submit to your opposition. Lose control of yourself in a destructive or harmful way. Or take an extreme action in line with the principle, then run away. So, again, all these balance moves really, they really go hard into the narrative, which is just awesome. Absolutely awesome. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, the, bal- the idea of balance and all that sort of stuff is a key part of Avatar The Last Airbender. Absolutely. Um, now, I'm going to get just into the Game Master stuff, which we don't usually do, but it's very different. It's very different. So I'm just going to quickly go over it. So the Game yeah, Master absolutely. has what's called agendas that you sort of have to stick to. They're very simple. You have to ensure the world feels real. You have to make the player character stories meaningful, important, and you have to play to find out what happens. They're the core agendas of the Game Master. You must be doing those at all times if you're playing this system. What they mean is ensuring the world feels real just means like stick within the boundaries of Avatar The Last Airbender. Make the PC stories meaningful, important means that you have to equally give all the characters time. Um, And then playing to find out what happens means you don't want to come up with the story already. You must figure out with your players how the story is going to go. You don't Mm. write it yourself like you might do in Dungeons and Dragons, which is that's the big one. Yeah, like that still blows my mind a little bit that that's how it works. Yeah. Um, Next we have baselines, which is just how you describe things or how you talk about sorry it's how you talk about the rules or 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 what you're describing and that sort of stuff so you always have to say what the guidelines demand and then go on uh what the rules demand or what honesty demands so this game is also like don't ever lie to your players just tell them what they know don't lie to them you're not here to trick them yeah um because again that you want to avoid that um gm versus the players mentality that sometimes happens um there's a couple of guidelines that the game gives you as well. So it wants you to describe a wondrous world with deep, with deep history. Address the characters, not your players. Be the companions, which is, the, which is your party. Uh, be the companion's biggest fan. Ask questions and let your players answer. So that's, the other, that's one of the big differences this system has, where it's, it's you don't tell them what happens or you don't tell them how they're feeling. You ask them what mm. they think their person would do or, or what they're feeling. Which is what their character um, is. That again, we get into this when we get into the gameplay and pizza talk. But there was a moment when one of our players said um, something along the lines of, "Oh no, they've succeeded, so they get to tell, they get to say what what's happened." And it just sort of it it feels like that this is a system that really requires in tune players because if you're just going to have a player that goes, oh, well, then I just steal everything in the room without anyone noticing. Like, it, it is something that they can do, but it would kind of break the system a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You have to, everyone sort of really has to be on board with the narrative for yeah. this game to work. Um, put emotions on characters' sleeves. That's the next question. Um, is the next guideline. Uh, resolve conflicts episodically. 
the game really wants you to fall into that Avatar 20-minute cartoon feel, which is really yeah, cool. And yeah. I think it's the best way to run the game. Um, remember the history of the world and characters, so take notes, obviously. Emphasize lessons throughout. That's the big thing the game wants you to do as well, is really lean hard into the lessons you want your players to learn or the characters to learn. Yeah. Um, you have to give non-player characters drives, fears, and hopes. You have to make conflicts moral choices. Um, use imbalance instead of evil. So someone isn't innately evil, they're imbalance. So when we talked, when I spoke before about um, losing your balance, that's what the game's referring to. It doesn't want someone to be like a mass murderer for the hell of it. They want them to be lashing out against the race of people that killed their mother is what they actually want. You know, they want yeah. those sorts of things. Um counterbalance darkness with light again you you never want it to seem bleak without that little bit of light in there or you don't want it to seem so always going to be good without some sort of threat or something falling apart yeah um and then the last guideline i want you to follow is seek consequences besides death finally there's the gm moves which basically whenever someone fails something or like gets a negative or gets gets below a six or six below, you get to do a GM move for the most part. Um, it's not necessarily written in stone, but it's just another helpful guide for you. So there's reveal a hidden truth, inflict fatigue or a condition, shift their balance, twist loyalties with tempting offers, escalate to violence, offer a risky or costly opportunity, threaten someone, shift the odds suddenly, exploit a weakness in their history, provide wisdom in an unlikely place, or turn a move back on them. Now, some of those seem like they might be, they, they can just go anywhere, and that is absolutely true. You don't need to do this on a fail. Um, you can just put them in there, you can put them in as part of your story, but it gives you a lot of options, and it's nice just to have something that you're like, okay, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to choose Escalate to Violence. So now this person's fighting you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just always that constant helpfulness. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it for the GM stuff. Uh, again, I just want to really outline that this isn't something that you plan for. Yeah. I tried, I stuffed up when I was first planning for our season. And it actually works out that we're talking about this afterwards. But I, I really stuffed up in that I tried to really, like I spent a lot of time thinking and planning. And then I reread the game and I was like, oh, I have to throw everything I've done away. And I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Which uh, I, I think could be quite daunting for any sort of newcomer GMs, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's the exact kind of system a newcomer GM should. I think should, it is uh, because if I think towards. it is if if you and your players are all fans of the game, yeah, this you'll you'll be okay. Yeah, you know, because yeah. you all know the structure of an episode. No, that's and, it. and that's what it. you want and how it works. So yeah, so that's um that's sort of the gameplay section. I think that's actually the longest section of absolutely the, of the yeah. system. Like there's there's. A, there's a lot there, but it's not super confusing. There's, it's very, as we sort of said earlier on, it's very formulaic. It's very, okay, you do this, now this happens, and you get to ask one of these five questions and things like that. Like it's all laid out very nicely, very neatly for you. So let's get into character creation, which is another thing that has everything laid out really nicely for you. Um, now we've sort of already indicated that uh, that character creation 
um, or, or character classes essentially are these things called playbooks. So, so Jesse, why don't you talk us through creating a character and what that looks like in this in this powered by the apocalypse system? Yeah. So first of all, the game asks you to come up with your co- character concept and then choose the playbook that is most applicable. So, again, really simple. The way it works is there is you you essentially. It's not like, I want to be a firebender and that's my class. No, it's the kind of person you are that is what you're choosing, not what you can do. Any kind of person, any playbook can be any kind of skilled person, which is really cool. And doesn't even need to be a bender necessarily as well. No, no. So I'm going to work off of the rogue because that's the one that I have here. And it's one one, one of our players were in the game so first of all we have training and fighting style so you need to choose your training training is one of six options you're either a waterbender a firebender an earthbender an air or an airbender or you are really good with weapons or you're really good with technology yeah to the same level that the benders might be with their with their with their element so that's the first thing you need to choose. Once you've chosen that, you need to come up with a fighting style. And this is really, this isn't like, I am a tiger thing and then I do all, it's, it's like you, you tell us in, in two, two or three words, pretty much how you fight. Yeah. Um, and that, and there's no like set guidelines for that. It's nope, like, it could be anything. Just- I fight scrappy and dirty, and so all of a sudden you 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 know you're making these fights where you're throwing sand in people's faces and all that sort of stuff, you know. So it's yeah, it's very open. Yeah, like big and loud could be your fighting style, and that could apply to any of the six trainings easily. Yeah. Um, it could be stinky butt, and yep. your fighting style is massive gas expulsions like i mean so please don't ever do that but yeah (laughs) i think that actually would be my fighting style it would be i'd I'd be a butt bender butt bender hate that (laughs) um (laughs) um yeah so i mean just off the top of my head um a one one could be a um or uh, stone thrower you know yeah. that could be that could be anything but it could absolutely be specifically earthbending that's the yeah. other thing you can lean hard into your element if you want you could have lightning boxer you could have um air surfer yeah absolutely you know? and in, like in the uh, the book from memory it does have a couple of like examples as to what your fighting style could be but then it doesn't really tell you what they might look like like i chose a I think it was um, hard and fast or something like that. And basically I I took that to mean that my character being an airbender can like launch himself into and out of fighting situations really quickly. So, And then you then went into that. So Yeah. And it's super open for interpretation, which I think is very cool, but also quite scary. Yeah. The playbook will then ask you to choose a background um, from one of these six. Military, outlaw, urban, monastic, privileged, or wilderness. You then get to choose your demeanor, which gives you six options. They are unique to each playbook. Yes. Um, you can choose as many as you want. <laughs> you can choose, or, or I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think it's like up to four, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. 
But acerbic, sly, joking, extreme, cynical, and wild are the options for the rogue. So already you get like a background, you get a demeanor that could be as deep or as complex as you like, or it could be really simple. And already your character's starting to form. We don't even have a name yet. We haven't even looked at our stats. Yeah. So on. Um, then we come to our little stats box after that. And we have creativity, focus, harmony, and passion. Now, for the rogue, they start with creativity at a plus one. Their focus is a zero. Their harmony is negative one. And their passion is plus one. But Where, part of whereas, the... Oh, sorry. Part of the creative process is that we get to add a plus one to any singular one of those stats. We can either yep. negate that negative one, we can bring up either one of our plus ones, or we can up the focus, like up the zero to a one. Every playbook's array of starting statistics are different, but it generally comprises of two plus ones, a negative one, and a zero in some sort of order. So. Yeah, low low values, which is we love low values here. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. absolutely, absolutely. It's less to worry about. Um, then finally, you'll have a bunch of moves that are unique to the rogue itself, um, or your playbook itself. Um, the rogue has roguish charm, or you're not my master, or casing the joint. So very situational moves dependent on your playbook. Um. Yeah, it's really simple. Yeah, really it is simple. simple. But there, like, there is a there's a lot to it. So I don't think we need to go into each individual playbook. No, I don't think we do. Um, but it is worth having a look through them if this is a system that you're interested in, because they are very interesting in the way that um, each is structured so differently. So yeah, definitely worth having a look. Yeah. The next part is how each one of the playbooks relate to each other. So first of all, you just need to, on your second page of your character sheet, you need to describe your look. You can do that however you like. Um, it asks you to put a hometown. Do that if it's necessary. You then get to, it has a bunch of questions for you to answer about your history. Um, I'm just going to go through the rogues ones. And you're meant to do this at the table in your session zero when you're creating your characters. So how did you first come to feel that breaking the rules was the only way to survive? Who kept trying to reach a kind hand out towards you only to be rebuffed? Who was ready to do anything to break you of your bad habits? What is your favorite possession that you stole, swiped, or otherwise illegally acquired? <laughs> or why are you committed to this group or purpose? So you have to answer that and you have to do that on the table just so everyone can hear it. The last one is connections. Every single person, every single playbook has two connections and one of those connections has to be, or, or both of those connections has to be filled in with another person at the table. So it has to be, I think player one is way too uptight, too trapped in themselves and they need to break some rules. Or player two is amazing and I hope they like me. Maybe they're worth playing it straight. So like every single playbook has those two connections and it has to be one of the other players. So yeah. the ga again, the game is forcing you in, in together, which is just awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, or look, there's, there's two more things. Um, there's fighting techniques. Every playbook specifically has a unique fighting technique, and then you pick up other fighting te techniques as the game progresses. You either um, learn them from another playbook, or you pick up some of the fighting techniques by developing them or choosing them as you go. Um, they, they're either learned, um, practiced, or mastered. A learned f technique... You've on you only know how to do it. That's all. So it costs you fatigue, I think, to do it when you're fighting. Um, if you've 
if you've practiced it, it means you've done it a few times and you can do it like once um, on a high success. But if you've mastered it, you can do it on a mixed success, no problem. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And then lastly, every playbook has a unique moment of balance, um, which is essentially a moment where you get to take over the narrative for a big character section. You know, like this is the end of the episode. One character comes through at the end and saves the day kind of thing. Or it could be like the season finale um, moment where you unlock your moment of balance. Every Everyone is slightly different. Um, I'll just read you the rogues. You've learned early on that you had to do what, what you needed to survive, and that sometimes meant you lost friends. Now you find a new balance. Rule-breaking isn't something that just drives people away. It's something you can use constructively with your friends. Tell the GM how you lead your companions to break all the rules and accomplish an incredible feat. So that, could, that is so open-ended, but yeah. it, it allows you to give you these awesome moments that you want for your character on your terms, which is just awesome. No, it is. It is. And if I could just quickly read you the hammer one, which is the character Please. I, I was playing. Uh, so the moment of balance is that you can knock down every wall in the world, but balance isn't found in conquest and destruction. You know, some walls need to stand to keep people safe. Tell the GM how you put yourself directly in the path of an inescapable threat to completely protect someone or something from harm. Again, so open-ended, so awesome. And but yeah. we can already see that how much the game is like lessons, lessons, lessons. Lessons are important. Yeah. Because absolutely. it's all about le- like that's it's trying to teach you stuff, which is just so cool. That's yeah. pretty much it for playbooks. So it, simple. It is. It is. And like I said, I encourage you to grab them if you can. Have a look through them. There's some really interesting uh like flavor text, um interesting choices, all that sort of stuff. Really worth having a look through. Um, but I guess that just brings us now to, I, I guess this is sort of the last section, uh, and that's combat and how combat works. Cause we've talked about these moves that you have, these fighting techniques, um, that can be learned, practiced or mastered, but they also have like three different categories and that sort of drives combat instead of initiative. So Jesse, yes. why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So combat exchanges are broken up into exchange steps. So basically, what that means is there is nine techniques available for you in combat. And they've broken up into three categories. Defend and maneuver, advance and attack, and evade and observe. Each, there's three in each. Each one definitely falls within to those two descriptors. Um, and they can cover pretty much anything you can imagine in combat. <clears throat> so... The way it works is the DM actually starts first in terms of... It's hard because there isn't an order, but basically when combat starts, the DM has to choose... The GM, sorry, has to choose a bunch of... Uh, one of these three for every single NPC in the exchange or every or the group of NPCs in the exchange. And they keep that choice secret. Then each of the players have to choose which of the defend, maneuver, advance, attack, or evade and observe techniques they're doing. Their combat techniques also fall under one of those three subheadings. So there's all, like, if it's like, I want a lightning bend, that's under advance and attack. Yeah. Once that, that's chosen, the GM reveals what they chose for each non-player character, and the PCs 
also reveal their thing. Or if it's two PCs they reveal that are fighting, they reveal it here. Um, at time at the third step. From there, all combatants that chose defend and maneuver resolve their approach. So that could be um for example, one character decided to ready themselves. They marked one fatigue to ready themselves or their environment, assigning or clearing a fictionally appropriate status of nearby characters or yourself. So you can get rid of a status. Mm. Um, statuses are kind of like mini conditions yeah, um, yeah. that are just like in the moment. They're, they're not something that's... They're like physical. Statuses are physical. Conditions are mental. Think of it like that. Um. Then all the combatants that chose advance and attack resolve their approach. So that could be strike, strike, which is strike a foe within reach, forcing them to mark two fatigue, mark a condition, or shift their balance away from center. Every one of these techniques you obviously roll for as well. And then lastly, all the combatants that chose evade and observe resolve their approach, um, which is you can, for example, bolster or hinder, so you can aid or impede a nearby character inflicting an appropriate status. Um, and then during, once that exchange is done, once you've done the evade and observe, you see if anyone lost their balance, um, or if they were taken out, that's when you resolve what happens there. And then you go back to the top. It's interesting because it means that the order of play is going to be changing, um, from turn to turn, which can be really interesting. It keeps people, I guess, engaged in the combat because you're not just sort of sitting around going, oh, okay, I know that I'm going to be after this person over here, so I'm just going to sort of doodle on my, you know, doodle on my book or something until that that person goes, and then I know it's my turn. You know, it's it's it it encourages thinking, or at least I feel it encourages thinking and adapting to the changing situation. Absolutely, it's kind of this little, it's kind of like a rock paper scissors, but a bit more involved. So it's like yeah. you, you you like okay, I think in this position this person will do this, so I'm going to. I want to do this or I we're not ready for this fight so I need to seize a position so I need to go first so I'm going to defend a maneuver and then use seize a position so we start better you know it's really unique in that way say five characters just as an example five characters choose defend and maneuver is there mm-hmm. then an order with which those get resolved or is that amongst, no you just you just you just amongst um, amongst them how, yeah, okay. how you think realistically it would happen. Yeah. Right, cool. Um, so when you're rolling one of these basic techniques, um, on a seven to nine, you get to use one of the basic techniques, one of the three, um, so you succeeded, or you get to use a mastered technique. Mm. So that's on your mixed success. So if you've, mastered a te- if you've mastered lightning bending, you can just use it on a seven to nine. Good work. On a 10 plus, you get to choose one from this list instead. You can mark one fatigue to use a learned technique. So you've only just picked up this technique. You can use one practiced technique, which doesn't cost anything, but you can use it. Or you can use two different basic techniques on a 10 plus or, um, or mastered techniques. So you can do like multiple things in a turn, which is really cool. Which is cool. If you succeed. Um, on a miss, you stumble, but you can shift your balance away from center to use one basic technique. So even if you fail, you can still do something. You just, the cost is you move your balance around. Yeah. So your balance, again, 
something constantly shifting, constantly in in flux, which is so cool. Um, the statuses we don't need to worry about. It's just it's just like positives and negatives, um, or clearing fatigue for good ones, or adding fatigue for for bad ones. That sort of thing. Really simple. Yep. But that's pretty much combat. It sits on one page in the book. Like like um, sorry, there is a. It goes into detail in the book, obviously, but yeah, yeah. there is a little cheat sheet down the bottom which has everything you need for combat in a single page, and it's so simple. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's actually so simple once you're looking at it. The and it steps really are there is. in front of you. Yeah. You know, it's rock, paper, scissors with the basic techniques, and then all of your combat techniques are rock, paper, or scissors. And even then, even if you lose, like, there's still something you're going to do. So, again, it's about creating the narrative. Even within combat, just so good. Usually, it's just who does the biggest number, but there's almost no numbers. Do you know? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. That's it. The one thing I will say is that fatigue works differently for both players and char- for players and non-players. Uh, non-player characters, if their fatigue is full, congrats, you've beaten them. That they, they they pass out or they get killed or whatever, they leave. Yep. Um, but if the players fill up their fatigue, obviously, then you know they take conditions and so on. Um, so yeah, that, yeah. and that's the, that's the game. The, that's oh, it. the one thing I didn't bring up was, um, uh, the, the leveling up. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, let me find it. So when you, so when you, at the end of every session, your DM will ask you some growth questions. So each player answers the following questions. Did you learn something challenging, exciting, or complicated about the world? Did you stop a dangerous threat or resolve or solve a community problem? Did you guide a companion towards balance or end the session at your center? And then I believe- Each player also has, yeah. each playbook has a unique question as well. For each yes, they mark growth. When you have marked four growth, you can take a growth advancement. And on everyone's playbook, the the advancements are there. It's very simple. It's either a new move or a move from somewhere else. You can raise a stat. You can shift your center, or you can unlock your moment of balance. And that's leveling up. So they like it's that's it. That's the game right there. That's it's it. Excellent. Yeah, it is. It's, there's not a lot to it. Like it's not as um, maths heavy as D and D. It's not as um, like draining on the DM as say you know your Star Wars Age of Rebellion or something. There's there's a there's a lot to it, but it's a lot of. I feel like it could be really strong if you get the right sort of group together, which is um which is really awesome. Um, but you're right. That's pretty much it, Jesse. So you are DMing our session for this season. I am. And we have two very wonderful players coming and playing with us. We have Nicola, who is returning to us from our Season 3 Witcher campaign. Uh, and we also have Ash, which is, uh, who is uh, your friend who has played Power by the Apocalypse before. Yeah, and he's played quite a few, and he's DM'd me for all of my experiences with Power by the Apocalypse, except for the one Avatar game that I ran him back when it was a fan system. Yeah, not, right. Not not this system. Um, spoiler alert, this system's better <laughs> than the fan system. Um, 
But I mean, our experience with fan systems, I feel like that's pretty obvious. Well, I mean, we've only had one and it was not great. So <laughs> we keep bringing it up. Um, but Jesse, because you are DMing our season, would you like to introduce us to your story? Absolutely. Earth, a man karate chops a rock in half. Fire, a woman walks through the air on jets of flame as if up a staircase. Air, a man zips left, right, up and down at incredible speeds, landing in a burst of dust. Water, a woman draws water from the ground and turns it to ice in the shape of a trident. Avatar Kuruk, Kyoshi's predecessor, was a disappointment as an avatar. With instability growing worse in the Earth Kingdom, there was desperation to find the next avatar quickly. An earthbender Yun was identified as the avatar. Avatar Yun is also a disappointment. Failing to manifest any element other than Earth has left the world very anxious and scared. Taking advantage of the weakness of the world is the Fifth Nation, the most powerful pirate fleet in the world. Its long history, large numbers and impressive strength set it apart from the other pirate fleets in the world. Members originally came from the Southern Water Tribe, but the fleet was made up of people from all ethnicities and believed in treating their members equally. Part of this fleet is a small water tribe ship called the Cobra Fant, a mid-sized vessel of sleek design sitting low in the water to give waterbenders easy access to the sea. It resembles an oversized canoe with a large house stacked on its stern. Making up its crew is a small group of waterbending pirates and some officers, a waterbender, a firebender, an airbender, and a constantly drunk captain known as Captain Hanta, who likes to call himself a brewbender. The ship sits with a dozen of others, all encased in a glacier in the South Pole, waiting for their leader, Tagaka, to show the signal and attack the forces of Avatar Yun, who has come to make a treaty with the Fifth Nation. Look, that's uh, that sounds awesome. Now, you know, we've already played it, so I don't really, uh, I don't want to give too much away. So I'm not going to speak too much about it. But it's a good, fun time, guys. So, look, uh, is that everything we need to cover for Avatar? Legends? Absolutely, that's that's the whole game. And we will see you next episode for Avatar: Remnants of the Fifth. All right. See you later, guys. A sadness cycle. Yeah, sadness. That cycle. should be uh, that should be Lin Cuisine's. Um, catchphrase they should use that in their advertising i think yeah and i'm glad you cycle. said lean cuisine because that is not the group i'm going with so um <laughs> yeah we can trash that as much as we like <laughs> lean cuisine you jerks yeah, eat, eat shit lean cuisine <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Table top unknown